The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands, for the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of life that I have made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Is it on? Well, this doesn't happen often. Uh, <laughs> but I, today, am uh, traveling between both campuses. Uh, my name is Stacy Croft. If I haven't met you, I just came in through that door. Um, and uh, so, usually, I'm here preaching um, pretty regularly, and, and in the future, we'll probably remain here, not going back and forth. But every now and then. Uh, Scott, Russ, and I will uh, preach at one another's campuses just to give a little break. And so Scott is out of town today, and uh, I was able to preach at Old Hickory today, which is great. So I could tell them hello for you, and uh, it was fun to be there and, and kind of do that. But, um, gosh, talk about walking in the door. Uh, I'd love to meet you at some point. I will have to run out the door again, which is kind of st- just kind of stinks, but if I ever... Um, get to meet you. I'd love to. I hope you sign the black books or grab me at some point um, and, uh, or shoot me an email and let's get lunch and, and connect over something. Um, well, if I was going to ask you um, this question about how to like, impact the world, that's a huge question, right? That's one of those things like, what do we do to save the world? You know, it's like, whoa, big question. Well, there are all these articles and things out right now asking that kind of question. Like, what, what is the key ingredient to life? Like, what's the key ingredient to us as a church? 
uh, to our city? What are the things that actually are going to transform it? And one of the things we're asking right now, even as um, pastors and people on our staff, and we've talked to some of you out here just asking that question, is what's going to, what actually is going to change things? Um, there's a key ingredient that you just heard in this passage that we're going to look at this morning, but I want to read uh, briefly from the Wall Street Journal that threw out something about the, what is going to change businesses, because I think it actually is, is even transferable. Listen to this. The best bosses are humble bosses. After decades of screening potential leaders for charm and charisma, some employers are realizing they've been missing one of the most important traits of all, humility. In an era when hubris is rewarded on social media and in business and politics, researchers and employment experts say turning the limelight on humble people might, yet, might yield better results. There are countless articles about that. I even read another one talking about religion of an op-ed writer in the New York Times who said this. He said, over breakfast with a social psych- psychologist I know, I asked him what constructive contribution Christians could make to public life. And as an atheist who finds much to admire about religion, though he's an atheist, he answered simply, humility. There's this crossover there, and you're starting to see it more and more. And I think that what we read in this passage almost reads somewhat proverbial, like a proverb that you heard in the beginning of the righteous and at the end the wicked. And it's a little different from what we've been reading in Isaiah. Isaiah is a book that really uh, is talking about the people of God and their connection to uh, what's going on around them. They've been, uh, before they were exiled, they were in this world of like, uh, how, is, how is this religion, how does Christianity really connect? You know, like what is this, what is this relationship to God have to do with my life? And then they were sent into exile, a superpower in Babylon essentially took over and took them away from their homes. We, we looked at some of that last week, even just to talk about what is it like to be stripped of everything, home, safety, security, all of that, and then have to figure out what is life made of. And now we see them kind of coming out of that and God giving them hope of what's to come. But what is their hope? And what has God put it in? And I want to say it's contrition. It's not a word we typically talk about. We don't like say, are you contrite? You know? But this is what God is saying. He says in verse 15 there, the key to this whole thing is, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. Is God. He's talking about his itself. He's holy, lifted up. And yet he says, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit. Okay, if you were to say, where does God dwell? And, God, and you look at this passage, you go, God dwells with them? You, you would definitely say God dwells in the high and holy places. Maybe some of you are even coming into this room this morning, revisiting church or even thinking, even in a place like this, which we are so grateful to meet here, it, it, it just exudes a transcendence, like high holiness, right? But God is saying he dwells with the contrite and lowly in heart. Humility is, 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 a, is a tangent of that, that he dwells. He specifically puts himself with those who are lowly in spirit and contrite in heart. And so if that's the case, we really need to take this seriously. I, I think that what this passage is saying when it talks about that, it's saying this is the key to how you live in this life. We're going to look at that together, just those two parts of it. What does it mean to be contrite? We're going to ask that. What does it mean to receive comfort? 
Because God says there's comfort here for those who are contrite in heart. So just those simple things. What is contrition or what does it mean to be contrite and what does it mean to be comforted? When the passage begins, if you read it in um, Isaiah 57 there, it again, like I said, it looks kind of like a proverb. And proverbs a lot of times will say things like the righteous or the wicked or the way of so-and-so is wicked. You know, they kind of put use those terms. What it means here though, when it says the righteous man perishes, and you see verse 1, and then at the end of the very chapter in verses 20 and 21, it talks about the wicked are, t- are like tossing sea. It's not saying that there are people out there that just make bad choices. That's what we typically read into that. We typically read it and go, righteous person is somebody who does the right things. And a wicked person is somebody who just does all the bad stuff. But what this is actually saying is it's a life. It's a whole world that they live in. It's not just one choice. Otherwise, there'd be no righteous wicked. It'd just be one word. We'd all be wicked. But it's saying that there are those who are separated because this is their whole world. And sandwiched in that to say what's kind of the crux of the whole passage is where God dwells. Verse 15, with those in the high and holy place and with those who is contrite and lowly of spirit. That this is where God comes. And we're supposed to take note of that because when he talks about that, that means contrite. And it's a word that, again, we don't use a whole lot in our vernacular. But contrite is really getting at the fact that, and if you look at it in your phone or something like that, it'll say, you know, being penitent. Maybe like, you know, seeing your guilt and kind of your shame and kind of getting, but the Hebrew word unpacks it as it usually does in a much deeper, profound way. And a lot of times when when I say that, you're like, he's just saying that so he sounds like, yeah. So sometimes when we say Greek and Hebrew, what I'm saying is sometimes the old languages actually unpack more of what it really means. And the word that it says is crushed. Literally just crushed. And we use that, especially in somebody, I was talking to somebody who was not, um, I remember hearing actually somebody speak that was not from America and they were looking into our culture and the way that we use those languages. They said, American culture today uses so many words like, you just crushed it, man. You killed it. Like the way that we talk about things is so over the top and such violent words now. But this is kind of the language that's being drawn out. Crushed. Absolutely just battered and beaten down by life. I remember, I think I shared this with some of you, but my office used to be, uh, it was on 8th Avenue. We're actually moving offices, so some of you will get an email, especially uh, for men's uh, Bible study. We're having to move because we don't have an office. So uh, we're going to be moving right over here soon. But um, the, uh, my office used to be on West End, and it was in a building that faced West End. So you know where 2525 is and Centennial Park and all that. So our office, and mine was on the ground floor, and the door was right there. And so when people came to the door, I often had to be the one to kind of hop up and grab it. And so we would have people come by a lot um, who were either poor or homeless or um, and needy in some sort, and uh, they would knock on the door and ask for help or those kind of things. It was just situated in just the right place for that. One day we had, I heard a tap-tap on the door. It was not a usual tapping. It didn't sound like somebody knocking on the door. So I went to the door, opened it up, and there was a man with a cane. He was blind. And he was uh, in shorts, and it was warm. It was this kind of time of year. And he was trying to find, I said, can I help you? He was trying to find P.F. Chang's, which was about a block away. He said, I'm going to uh, a job interview. I said, well, okay, can, is there any way I can help you? And he said, well, yeah, you can lead me there and um, you know, help me 
Can I get to where I need to be? And I said, okay, sure. So I noticed as I walked out and I looked at his legs as he had shorts, you could see just the scars and even the, the current cuts and gashes in his chins and his knees. just from him hitting things. And it's the way that he laid his hand on my shoulder and guiding him across the street. And we talked very, very little as we walked over there and walking him into P.F. Chang's, trying to help him find whoever it is he's, you know, find. Very competent man, very there. But it just, it, it poured over me this picture here of how life, I'm sure, in this sense, as much as I was leading him to this, all these things, I had uh, no cuts on me, nothing to show for in those ways. I, I, I haven't seen, had any outward uh, difficulty in my life, such as blindness or those kind of things. I, I had a job in my hands, and yet this man showed me the picture of what I need to be. This is the picture of contrition. This is the picture of life, actually, and this is what the Hebrew is of beating and battering us. The ways that we get gashed the ways that we find ourselves financially, fiscally, or in some ways without a job or any other pressure of that sort, those ways that we feel absolute weight pressing down on us. That's the picture of it. And this is what we're supposed to understand with contrition, that, that when God talks about this, these are the people that He dwells with. And, and I don't know if that, that strikes you funny, but for me, and I that's a hard thing because, uh, unlike him, I, no outward scar, nothing of those things, well, that's what we want to present ourselves as. If, the, if we live in, in some sort of culture, we want to present ourselves as we're not going to be crushed by anything. And if we are, we're going to make our way out of it. Or we're not going to display ourselves as someone who's, who's battered and beaten down by life. But isn't that what God is saying? No, 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 you're missing it. Because <laughs> this is how I've, I've wanted to live my life. I, I've wanted to try not to have those things. How am I going to make it? How am I going to put my shoulder down? I mean, I know you feel the same way. But how do we live with a contrary heart? What does it really mean to live crushed? To actually allow ourselves to experience that. And to know it's right and good. And that this, this is where God says he dwells. There's a book called Spiritual Depression. I would recommend it to you if you haven't read it before. It's a thick book. But there's some moments in there that are really powerful. It's written by a guy named uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and in there he talks about this, this phrase called the over-dissection of the soul. And, and I think this is pertinent to us because what we tend to do is we can take being crushed or those kind of things and run with it. And say We can over-identify ourselves with it, or we can run from it, but what he says is this. He says, I suggest we cross the line from self-examination to introspection when, in a sense, we do nothing but examine ourselves and when such self-examination becomes the main and chief end of our life. So one of the things that can be dangerous here is when we talk about contrition is like, yeah, I do that all the time. I'm a seven with an eight wing and, I, you know, like you kind of go down that road, you know, and we can say, oh, stop doing me, Stacy. stop it. You know, like we use that, like, like we kind of think about our lives in that way and we self-knowledge, which is great. It's so good for us. Uh, therapeutically, relationally, that's what God wants. But contrition is different. It's not us dwelling on our badness or on our idiosyncrasies or on those things. That's not it. It's actually a twist of that. It's knowing the reality of who you are and not dwelling on it and also knowing that God does not dwell on it. 
He comes to dwell in it. Because what we want to do is we can over-identify with those things and make our identity the things we're crushed with. Or run from those things and comfort ourselves in other ways. You see the, you see the dynamic here that's fascinating. What God is saying is, if you want to know comfort, you have to know contrition. But if you want to know uh, what contrition is, you've got to live in comfort. You have, those two have to go together. Otherwise, you can live in despair with just thinking about all the things about you or self-examination or introspection as, as Dr. Jones says, over-dissection of the soul. That's what he says. Think about that. Over-dissection of the soul. Over and over and over and over. Just taking it apart. Or we live in comfort where we don't really experience the things that are in us or what we really need. And he describes it here later as being blown away. See, being unwilling to face our contrition, running from things like that. In verse 13, it says this here. Let's look at this. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them off. A breath will take them away. Sometimes when we're unwilling to face it, we want to find comfort. So maybe we see a part of ourselves being crushed, and we long and we run to something as an idol here to solve that comfort. But I love the picture of it here. And you know what it's like. It's saying it's like sitting in the wind. It has no weight. When a gentle breath comes by, it just blows it away. My my four-year-old, who's so precious, he's in that kind of vein right now, an age where he's noticing all the weather, you know, like thunderstorms and and, and all the things, wind and all those things. And one of the things that's so sweet is to look at it through his eyes when he sees a, a wind come by, he starts to look at the things around him and see what's going to get blown away. And he'll be like, whoa, 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 are you going to, are you going to, what, what if that blows away? And we often are having to, we'll say, okay, what if it does? What do we do if it blows, you know? But it really makes you think, okay, like children, do we know that the things that we pursue to bring us comfort don't hold a weight? They are things that we have to what? Grab and hold down. It's all up to us. It's all up to us to comfort ourselves when we feel crushed because we get these things, we pursue these things that will bring us comfort. That's the, that's the image that's going on. To grab hold of it. And, and the question is, what is that that you grab onto? To find comfort when you are crushed in life, when, when you are battered and beaten down, what are the things that you literally go to that you go, oh, I gotta hold on to this or it's gonna blow away? What is that thing? Because otherwise, what we're doing is it becomes this big imbalance of us actually being contrite of heart, being crushed, actually seeing who we really are, and being comforted with real care, real relationship, real love in that. Notice the way that God even says that. He doesn't minimize our contrition, but we can often do that. We can move past it so quickly to try and find something else. But God doesn't minimize it. He even says this close to the end. He says, I've seen his ways. Look, there's this this tussle going on between God and man here in verse 16 and 17. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I have made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and I was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. Even in the face of God's anger, right? There's still, we just still backslide. And isn't that what we, we're afraid of is in those moments? Like we're going to face 
God in those, in those moments of where he's just angry at us for, for going and, and, and pursuing these things. And so instead, we, we're like, well, we'll just pursue something else that's going to give us this love that we need. But what, what God does is he says, but I will dwell with them. You see, what happens is the contrition turns to comfort here, and that's where it turns on its head. Again, it's not that God dwells on our contrition. He doesn't dwell on your sin. When you did confession earlier and when you came here for that, and sometimes maybe, gosh, maybe you're here this morning, and the the thing that you bring in this room the most, whether you're here and you're just new into the doors of a church, or maybe you've come back, or maybe you're visiting this morning, and maybe you're just thinking, man, churches just reminds me of guilt. It's just guilt. If that is where you find yourself this morning, then you're missing what contrition is and you're also missing what real comfort is. Because it is in our contrition, it is in our being crushed that God comes in relationship to say, I know every part of where you're crushed and that's where I want to be. And that is so antithetical for us in every way. Because we think, oh, no, no, no. It's almost like when somebody gives you a gift, are you that kind of person maybe? Somebody gives you a gift or maybe you're in need or you're in trouble and you need some help and somebody gives you help and you kind of go, it makes you really uncomfortable. A lot of us live that way. This is that uber moment of God saying, I dwell with you because that's where relationship, that's where love, that's where you're going to be changed is through this. And let's look at that. Because comfort is that great parallel. And it looks like, and you're kind of, hopefully you may notice this, and we've, we've looked at this before from the Sermon on the Mount, this parallel to the New Testament where Jesus begins talking about all these ways and characteristics, almost like Proverbs, to say blessed are. It begins with the Beatitudes. And, and one of those, one of the first ones, the second one is blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Why does Jesus use that? This, this entire chapter is basically unpacking that. Because what it means for blessed are those who mourn, it means those who know what's in them and around them, the wreckage that is within your heart and that you cause outside of you, those who know that and are willing to embrace that are those who will, willing, will receive comfort. Those who will take and have comfort and it will actually penetrate them. And here's how it does. He says here in this verse, verse 15, he says, For thus the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, again, just this pitting, this difference, I dwell in high in the holy place and also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. And then he says twice, to revive the lowly, the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. To revive. This language for us is to say to bring to life and in, 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 in this, it's easy to say the heart and the spirit, and what does that mean? What it's actually saying is this. We've got to unpack what it does. Because the spirit here, it says, is when it's connected to heart, it changes things drastically in the language. It means that in spirit, that you and no longer have those moments where you lay in bed and you don't want, you can't get up. You know those moments when you are actually physically feeling crushed an injury, an illness, something that just continues. Maybe it's a constant that keeps coming back in a cycle. Something that's unaddressed. Something you don't know. And it just presses you and it continues. When God revives 
the Spirit, He's reviving, He's giving you vigor in it. And you know those moments, even when you can get out of bed and you're like, today feels lighter all of a sudden. And maybe you still have that illness, but something in you has changed in that. And heart, even there, is saying, pointing to a contemplative or appreciative side. It's not just physically getting up, but it's when your mind is directed rather than drifting. It means that your, your heart and mind and your, and your body and life are kind of like this, coming together to experience a freedom, a lightness. In fact, what he's trying to get out here is your life in revival. When you experience, experience revival, it's that you've been lifted up out of it because you cannot lift off the crushing weight that you have. I love summer TV. I don't know if you're a summer TV person. Uh, because they put on just the weirdest, silliest shows. Uh, I also am a, a, shark, a huge Shark Week fan. Don't know if you are. Uh, I'm probably alone in that, uh, seeing the crowd. Um, Brett knew I would mention that, by the way. He was like, you're going to be an idiot, and you're going to mention that you love Shark Week at some point this summer. I was like, yes, I will. Um, but I love those shows. One of the shows I haven't seen in a while, but I really have loved, and you can probably YouTube, I mean, you can YouTube everything now, but is World's Strongest Man. Have you ever seen this show? Um, great show. Uh, they have like a current version, you know, it, like spans back pretty far. Essentially with these big, huge guys uh, that are um, named like Magnus, Mayor Magnuson, stuff like that. Real, yeah, real people. Like this is not a joke, not a cartoon or anything. It, Magnus, so uh, they carry, like instead of like CrossFit or those kind of games, it's like the world's strongest man games, they carry like Volkswagens and things like that, normal, real normal stuff. Um, and rocks that weigh like 300 pounds, like it's just crazy things. Like they squat people, like they'll put like a giant scale on a person's back with people in them and they'll say, you squatted 25 people, you know, like that makes sense. So there's one episode uh, that I remember, I, one of my favorites from, is, I think it was the 70s, late 70s, early 80s. Because they had like the really tight shorts and, the, you know, and they, these guys can't put their hands together, you know, because they're so big. <laughs> and, um, and they had like the, the tank tops with the night cool stripes, you know, like cool 70, 80 stripes. Well, this, these guys are lining up and um, in a row. They're going to run like a 40-yard dash with, you know, a refrigerator on their back, which is very normal. And they put handles on them so they could hold the, the refrigerator, which that should give you a clue. You shouldn't be doing this if you have to attach handles to a refrigerator to run 50 yards, okay? So these guys line up, and the British announcer's on, and He's great. I love his voice, uh, and he's calling the whole thing. And as they go, they say, go. You know, they're running down the lane, everybody's screaming. This one guy steps, and his knee goes the complete other way. And yes, the crowd did exactly what you just did. They're all like, oh, God, you know, and they can't look. And all of a sudden, the, the, you know, like 1,001, 1,002, the announcer goes, wait, wait, he's still going. And the guy, it pans to the guy literally dragging his leg like this, and going down, still trying to complete it. I mean, he's going to make it um, with the refrigerator on his back. The picture of that is just absolutely insane. But that, that is the picture of what God is trying to get at here. You're not purposed to try and carry the crushing weight that you feel. And we have been purposed and taught that it is heralded for us to actually get out from underneath that. What is going to change us and what is going to change this city 
is not being a success story. It's going to be humility through a contrite, lowly spirit. And if we want to show, and if you're here and you would identify with not just being crushed, but identify with with Jesus himself and say, yes, I, I follow him. If we really want to display the beauty, the splendor of the gospel where God dwells, it's not going to be with us holding ourselves up and saying, look how great we are. Look at how great I can do. Because that is exactly the picture of us trying to run a race where we're not purposed to run. And I have tried that for ages in my life. I'm exhausted from it. And I see it in myself, and I know you see it in yours, where you think, yes, I can, I can overcome this. Whether it's your background, whether it's something in your life, what is going to soften us caring and showing the comfort of Christ to those around us is in when we embrace it and know we don't dwell in our being crushed. And God doesn't dwell in our crushing. He dwells in it. He doesn't dwell on us being crushed. He dwells in it. And it's so easy for us to come and think, okay, church, we do that. This is the gospel. The good news is that there's someone who takes on that for you. It's clarity. That marks of this are clarity. And this is where the word revive comes from. Revival. We want to see revival around us. That word may be an ancient word for you, some religious word, but they, they actually, way back in the day when people were saying, yeah, I'll come to faith, I'll, I'll turn to God. That's a real thing. And I pray for that for this city. And I pray for us to experience it. But you know where it comes from? It doesn't come from us adding things or doing more things or being better. It comes from us being faithfully contrite in heart. That's it. Because that's where God dwells. He dwells there with us. And that's his deep, effective presence. If we want to be healed, that's how we're healed, is by his dwelling with us. That's how this ends. Look at this. Verse 18, it says, I have seen his ways, and this is the greatest conjunction in all the Bible, but I will heal him. You know, I was reading that, and I was reading commentators on this verse, and they were confounded by this verse. And you're like, how? They're confounded because they go, why in the world? There's no turning. We don't know why. There's no reasoning for God to turn. There's nothing before it. It just says, I have seen his ways. God doesn't turn a blind eye to your being crushed in mine and the wreckage in you and me, but he will heal us. And how does he do it? By dwelling with us, by coming in, by healing us. Verse 20 says, but the wicked, and this is the difference, the wicked are like a tossing sea for it cannot quiet and its waters toss up mire and dirt. If you want to know what it's like to have a contrite heart and be comforted, it's the fact that you have clarity. See, the difference in righteousness and wickedness is that there's clarity. It's not that you escape all of the things in your life that crush you. It's the fact that you see them for what they really are and you see yourself for who you really are and yet you see God for who he really is dwelling with you because that's how we're changed is in relationship 
It's the deepest parts of you that are crushed, and yet God comes to you to deliver that. That, that, that difference, that clarity, that, that the waters, that you can see it, right? Isn't it when you're feeling crushed that everything seems murky? You can't see it. You can't see through it. You can't see what's really there. But when it's calmed by the good news of the gospel, you can see it for what it really is and know its size and know its scope and know how bad things really are. You can see them there. And you're healed. The fruit of that, the fruit, it says, of the lips, verse 19, creating the fruit, says God will lead him and restore him and comfort him and his mourners, creating the fruit of our lips. What is that fruit? It's just proclaiming repentance. That's what it is. It's proclaiming not our goodness and not our badness, but proclaiming Christ. You see, you know where everything just meets? Right here at this table. If you want to know where comfort and contrition come together beautifully, nowhere else does it match beautifully and fit together like a hand in glove than at this table. Because there's only been one who's actually been crushed completely for you. In fact, only four chapters before the one we're currently looking at, does it say that it pleased God? And in Isaiah 53.10, it actually pleased God to what? Crush him. It was talking about the servant. It was talking about Jesus. It was talking about what you get to taste at this table. That comfort and contrition come together. That all the things that you are crushed by are laid on someone else and all the comfort that you receive is from him. All the connection, all the relationship, all the ways that this, this is the picture that contrition, that being crushed, that experiencing it leads to deeper love and relationship because he meets you. Where else do you ever hear someone, they either dwell around you being crushed or on you being crushed, he dwells with those who are crushed because he has been. And he doesn't just be, be, he isn't just crushed like you, he's crushed for you. Praise be to God. Because otherwise, like you, I would think that I could go through this life and carry it all myself. And yet he has laid it on his own son. That's how you come to this table. Don't come to this table, please, if you think you can just carry everything. And I know I do too, but I mean, if you say, well, Jesus really can't carry anything. Come to this table knowing I'm crushed, Jesus. I can't do a thing. Will you please remind me again through the tasting of your blood and body that you have actually tangibly, physically, and in life taken on the crushing that I could not physically, spiritually, and emotionally. Let's stand together. Let's recite our creed together.